All right, so we are on week three, part three, uh, talking about preservation is God strong enough. Uh, two weeks ago for week one, we looked at what a final authority is. And as we saw from just looking at what do a lot of churches say they believe about the Bible, we found that even though they might say they have a final authority, saying something and actually believing it are two separate things. And that shouldn't surprise us because people are like that all the time. How many people do you go to school with that say, I'm a Christian, but <laughs> saying it and believing it are two separate things. Their life doesn't match up with it. And so we looked at the fact that at the end of week one, that God, because of who he is, what his nature is like, it requires him to have a single and a consistent final authority. That led into last week's message talking about general revelation versus special revelation. God reveals truth to his creation because he wants to be known. He wants to be known by his creation. So when we looked at general revelation and how it's not good enough, it doesn't quite tell us who God is and what the requirements are for salvation. As we got into the special revelation, we looked at all the different ways that God has spoken throughout time and we saw that there were how many different ways eight 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 different ways that god has spoken throughout time and i'm sure all of you were just so blessed to know about urim and thummim last week and i trust that you guys were sending accountability texts to each other to make sure hey were you in your daily urim and thummim this week that's supposed to be daily bible reading that's <laughs> Whatever, you guys are lame. I'm not lame, you're lame. So we looked at at the end that the last bit that God has chosen to spoke in these days is through the Bible, which has a flower pot on the cover of this Bible. Thank you, Jamie. Oh, I want one. Not for my Bible, though. Anyways. So we ended with talking about the Bible last week in the introduction. And the problem though, and this is where it is a problem to a lot of people, as we saw going back to week one, and what a lot of churches just even in this area believe, and they're just a small drop in the bucket to compare to all of Christianity today. The problem for most isn't that we hear from God in the Bible. The problem for them is what do they mean by God's word is inspired and it is without error and it is without fault. What do they mean by it? And we saw that for them, they believe that it was in the original pieces of paper that the authors wrote down. Only on that original piece of paper is that where God's word can be found. And as we covered, those papers don't exist anymore. Just because throughout time, things diminish. The idea of God's word only being found in those original pieces of paper, you, do, you guys realize that what they say when they mean that is that because those papers don't exist, we therefore don't really have God's words. That's what they're saying. That's If the cause is God's words are only found in the original pieces of paper, the effect is we don't have God's words anymore. That's essentially what they're saying. <sighs> So I guess Bibles that exist on the market, the best we can do is just get as close as possible to what we think God meant. Is that really the case? If so, what are we doing here? What's really the point? If the best we could do is just get as close to what we think God meant by having a Bible on the market, well, goodness gracious, I, I'm just going to go live my life the way that I want because I can't trust anything out of this book. Why even show up? Why even do anything that's found in here? Because we really don't have what God meant. We really don't have what God said. That's the prevailing thought in most of Christianity today. This is why today's topic of preservation is so incredibly important. I need somebody with quick fingers because I want four volunteers to read these next passages. All right, Carlin, Psalm 33, 6. Three more volunteers, please. Jamie, Jeremiah 32, 17. Warren, Hebrews 1, 3. Sammy, Philippians 3, 21. The question is on point number one, is God able to keep something intact and free from error? 
by and large, most of Christianity does not believe that that is the case. Psalm 33, 6. Carlin, what does that say? By God's very words, he spoke everything into existence. Jamie, Jeremiah 32, 17. There's nothing too hard for you, God, because you created the smallest microcosms of, of beings. You guys realize how many molecules are found in the very chairs that you're sitting on at this very moment in time? That if at any moment God just decided to speak one word, if he just said stop, the chair would disintegrate underneath you. <sighs> hmm, it's pretty huge. Hebrews 1.3. That very chair you're sitting on, Warren, is upheld by the power of his word. At any moment he wants to, he can breathe the word, and you're on your keister. Philippians 3.21, Sammy. We shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. He's able to subdue all things unto himself. So here's the point, and maybe you want to write this down. This is where it just boggles my mind. You mean to tell me that the basis of your entire belief system is founded upon faith in the fact that God not only spoke everything around us into existence and also upholds and keeps it all together. On top of that, that very same God decided to become a man, bled and died for your sins, and of his own power, rose his dead body up from the grave alive again. That is the basis of your entire faith. You mean to tell me that you have no problem believing that, but yet that very same God is incapable of preserving his word without error somewhere? He's not able to do that with the Bible? How asinine is that? How completely ludicrous is that to think that we only have God's perfect words found in the original pieces of paper on those manuscripts that Paul, Peter, Moses, and all the other writers of the Bible wrote down on. I would think it'd be harder to believe the gospel and creation more than it would be to believe, yeah, I kept this book free from error. Turn over to Jeremiah 36. We're going to spend some time here. This is the chapter that I had said, it, this is one of the most important chapters in all of your Bible talking about really the entire process by which God has given truth to us, but even more so the idea of preservation. God being strong enough to keep something intact and free from error. In point number two, we're going to look at God's divine process for revealing and propagating his truth. Propagating just means getting it out there. It's what we're talking really about on Wednesday nights. Seeking to see the lost saved and then seeking the saved to grow so that they can then see the lost saved in their lives. But it comes from getting the word of God out to others. So in letter A, we saw this last week. That's why we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. The first step in God's process for getting truth out is through revelation. Revelation, another word for that is just disclosure, if you want to think about this. It's disclosing truth. Here's the definition of it right below that. The direct knowledge of God from the natural and supernatural. That's what all of last week was about. General versus special uh, revelation. Again, I want to remind you guys of Isaiah 45, 23, as it pertains to revelation, God getting his truth out. He said, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. If God's word has gone out of his mouth... It has to be somewhere. It can't just be in the ether that we then grab it and try to put it somewhere. No, it has to be found somewhere. It has to be contained somewhere because it's not going to return back unto him. And we saw last week how God contained it in a book. So after he gives knowledge of himself, the very next step in the process is letter B, and that's what's known as inspiration. 
You guys should hopefully already be thinking about other passages of Scripture that come to mind when it comes to this. Inspiration is just known as documentation. If revelation makes truth known, inspiration provides for its recording without error. That's why your definition underneath that, it's the inerrant, without error, recording of God's revelation. You see this happening all the time in both the Old and New Testament. God reveals something, and then man is inspired to write that puppy down and to record it. Inspiration deals with the way in which God has given us the Bible. You see, having revealed himself to man, inspiration is the process through which God has this revelation written in, with, in written form. Understand something very clearly. If inspiration does not exist, the Bible is nowhere. Because all we have here are the words of men. Inspiration has to do with the recording of what God revealed. Otherwise, this is just the words of men. And again, what are we doing here? Some key verses when it comes to this. We looked at this last week. Peter said, we have also a more sure what? Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the script written down. Scripture is of any private interpretation. This prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's literally where we get the word inspiration from. 2 Timothy 3.16, this is the common one that we all think of. All Scripture is given by what? Inspiration. inspiration. It has to do with God breathing, just like in Genesis 2.7 where God formed man out of the dust of the ground and man and he breathed into his mouth the breath of life or breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. It's that breath of life, but you need to mark it down. This goes into the recording of what God revealed. This is key. Next in letter C, you have illumination or discovery. And it's this, it's the Holy Spirit given understanding of God's revelation. That's why Job 32, 8 says, there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So as God revealed the truth to man, man started writing it down. And as man was writing it down, he became enlightened. He got clear understanding of, oh, now I get it. Simply put, this is what happens to you guys every time you open up your Bible and God speaks to you. Does God speak to you when you open up your Bible? When you spend time with Him and His Word, does He speak to you? I get it. There might be moments where you're like, man, it just feels like I'm really dry right now. Maybe it's you with some sin issues or maybe it's just the time of the season. Sometimes that happens. Maybe God's testing you to see, okay, are you still going to come and meet with me even though I'm not giving you anything right now? Sometimes that happens. Don't be discouraged when that happens. Keep reading. Because it makes those times when you're like, holy cow, hey, did you see this over here? Do you realize that this means this? That's illumination. That's when God speaks to you specifically about something that you're going through. You and I get to experience that every single time. It's the understanding of God's revelation. We don't have the time to look at it, but you can check out 1 Corinthians chapter 2 later. Man, it's just a beautiful passage where he talks about that God, we, we understand his word and we get the mind of Christ when we compare spiritual things with spiritual things, line upon line, precept upon precept. God gives us that understanding. That's why in John chapter 15, he says, when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the father. And look, he even defines who the comforter is. Even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of who? Me. Who's me? Who's speaking here? Jesus is speaking here. Yeah, wasn't a trick question. You can shout it out. He's going to testify of me, meaning that the Holy Spirit, who gives illumination, who inspired man to record it, that Holy Spirit is going to testify of what I say, Jesus says. That's why in the next chapter, chapter 16, he says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The understanding, the illuminating of what God wants you to know, what he wants you to do. It's the personal devotional application of scripture. 
For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. There's a lot of talk in churches today about the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. So much so that there are actually some pastors who will say the Holy Ghost is more important than Jesus Christ. This, uh, I won't go too far into that. You guys can just look them up. They're all over the place. Right here it says, hey, the Holy Ghost isn't going to be a one-man operation. The Holy Spirit takes on the servant role of the Trinity. That's what we're seeing here from this verse. He's not going to speak of himself, which means he's not going to speak some new thing. He's not going to speak some new revelation, some new prophecy, some new... I got a spoken word from the Holy Spirit. I got a spoken word from the Holy Spirit. And usually it has nothing to do with what's contained between Genesis and Revelation. Got to watch out for pastors and people who say things like that. Because the Holy Spirit is only going to testify of whatsoever he shall hear. That's what he's going to speak. If the Holy Spirit says anything, you better make sure that it lines up with this book. Otherwise, when it comes to prophets and dreamers who dream dreams and say they're of the Lord, according to Deuteronomy, uh, if that thing doesn't come true, well, you could just check it out later what you're supposed to do with people like that. I would just say those guys better be thankful that that's in the Old Testament, not the New that's illumination. It's a blessing you get and you receive whenever God's speaking to you. Letter D, the next step after God reveals truth, inspires man to write it down without error, and gives them the understanding, the very next step that the Holy Spirit goes into is the key point for all of today's lesson and really for everything we cover from here on out. Preservation. Preservation is the defense of Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit's divine protection of the purity of God's inspired truth. We looked at this last week, Psalm 12, 6, and 7. You guys better memorize those passages. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And as we saw last week, it has absolutely nothing to do with Israel. The context of that passage is talking about the words. The words. Just wanted to emphasize the S on that because it's the individual words found within the word of God that matter to him. That's why he said in Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word is pure. Every word, the individual word found within the collective word of God, it's pure. You see, without the actual words of God being preserved, they would ultimately diminish over time. And if they diminish over time, Nobody really has any revelation from God, so we're still waiting on a special revelation. And therefore, nobody can be illuminated and have Holy Spirit given understanding by what God actually meant because His words are nowhere. Do you start to see how without preservation, this whole process breaks down and we don't have a Bible? This is absolutely crucial. Man. And lastly, the point of all of this, I mean... Yes, preservation is the key thing, but we can't lose sight of why. Why would God go through all of this trouble? It's because of letter E, propagation. It's the dissemination or the getting out. It's the act of taking God's revelation to the world. It's what we're learning on Wednesday nights. Why else go through all this trouble? God wants people to know Him. God wants to communicate with His creation so that they may know Him. And he wants to use you as a vessel to do it. You need to have confidence in what it is that you are propagating. And as the critical point at the bottom of your sheet, if you leave out preservation, you can only propagate your own illumination, which is what so many pastors do in today's churches because they don't have a final authority. Now look, don't turn your page yet. I wanted to cover all of these steps so that when we hit Jeremiah, you'll see all of these things coming forth. Keep yourself on this page. Now look with me in Jeremiah 36. All of these passages are found under all five of these points. 
We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to hit a lot of it, though. Jeremiah 36, in verse 1, we're going to see revelation given from God. Can I get a reader for that? Jack, go ahead. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying... No, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Only verse 1. So you see here, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. He's revealing himself. He's about to reveal truth to Jeremiah. Now look what Jeremiah does, in, or, or what God tells him in verse 2. Take thee a roll of a what? And, where, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. I'll never forget, I... Uh, one of the closing points, when I graduated the Bible Institute, I was 23. And back then we had uh, this thing wherever the graduates uh, would choose who to go up and preach the Sunday morning message on graduation Sunday. And I remember stepping up there to preach for the very first time a Sunday morning message for 45 minutes. And I remember this was one of the last points I did because it was 2011. It, our theme that year was the year of the book because 2011 was the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible being published. And I remember I said this point, and this verse always haunts me. It's scary. And if you think about it, this verse should scare you too, and it should be used when you talk to your friends about the, the authority of God's Word. You know how we know this book is from God? One of the most definitive ways possible? It's found right here in this verse. This book is prejudice against everyone prejudice. That's a pretty strong term to use in this day and age. You use that with an atheist and an agnostic who doubts that this book was, comes from God. You think that it's only from man? Uh-uh. God is against everyone. Doesn't matter your gender. Doesn't matter your race. Doesn't matter your sex. Doesn't matter your belief system. God is against everyone because everyone's a sinner. They've all violated his law. They have all violated his word in their conscience, in their actions. They are all guilty. And God wrote this book to come against mankind, not to tell mankind of how good he's doing, to fluff everything up and make it flowery. God's letting Jeremiah know, hey, I'm coming against everybody. The words that I have to say are against everyone. You think about that with the people that you are at school with. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every single day. You keep that in mind. As you draw near to God, which is our vision as a church this year, and hopefully you guys are reading Psalm 73. It's one of our vision passages. You'll find that David was talking about, the, the psalmist was talking about, that man, I, he gets so caught up in what people, what lost people are doing, and sometimes it gets him so ticked off. And for some of you in here, maybe... You're trying to be friendly, and I get your motive for it. You're trying to be friendly in order to win them to Christ or get them to church, and I get that, but we can't lose sight of the fact that what the psalmist said in Psalm 73, that, man, when I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, as he drew closer and nearer to God, then he understood their end. God is angry with the wicked every single day. Be friendly with them, but don't lose sight of the fact that God's angry with their sin and he's against them. And God put you in their life to propagate his revealed, inspired, illuminated, and preserved truth to them. Don't forget that. Verse 3. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now, don't miss this. God told Jeremiah, write the, all the words in a book. Verse 4, Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a what? Book. Right there is inspiration. God revealed truth to Jeremiah in verse 1. And now Jeremiah... Although he's dictating it to somebody else, Baruch, the scribe, is writing out all the words in a book. It's inspired of God. 
This is inspiration. He's recording God's revelation. Now we see here from verses 5 to 26, what ends up happening is Jeremiah, after everything's written, he sends Baruch the scribe to go and to, actually, this is where also propagation comes in, to take forth the book and to present it to the king, to present it to all of his princes, to present the revealed inspired truth of God to those whom God is against. And you can read it all out, and it's funny, man, because people read it and they're like, um, go get the princes. And then they get it to the princes. Um, we need to go get the king. <laughs> and everybody starts freaking out. This is a powerful book. This is a powerful book. This book will change people's lives. Check out, uh, let's look at verse 23. It came to pass that when Jehudi, oh, this is huge, this is crucial. Uh, look at verse 21, sorry for context. So the king sent Jehudi, the king, to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. What's funny is we get here from this, illumination works in two different ways. Some people, they get understanding of the Holy Ghost and his revealed inspired truth, but they don't like it. Experienced that recently, have you? Maybe with trying to witness to some of your friends. If not, some of you might experience it this afternoon when you go to the mall and witness that some people don't like the illumination of the Holy Spirit speaking to them through you as their mouthpiece. Some people, they're illuminated, but they're ticked off. Now read verse 25. Nevertheless, El Nathan and Deliah and Gamaria had made intercession of the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. Those guys more than likely were illuminated by the Holy Spirit and were like, no, we need to keep this. We need to contemplate what God is saying to us here. This here is illumination. They're being illuminated by the understanding of God's revelation. But you know what the king did in verse 23? As they're reading the inspired word of God, the king took a penknife and he cut out what he didn't like about it. One of the things we'll look at in the weeks to come, as you've already seen by some of the examples I've put up here, that same crap's happening all over the place with the Word of God. People cut out what they don't like about it because it doesn't fit their doctrine or because it cuts them to their core like a sharp two-edged sword would. And ultimately what they end up doing is what the king did here. They don't just cut out three or four. They cut out the whole thing because they want the word of God out of their lives because they want to be the final authority in their lives. Uh-oh. The original revealed inspired word of God is gone. Oh, well, I guess God will just pack it up and move to the next town, see if they're receptive. Wait a second, then. How are we reading this story right now? Hmm. Next, look at verse 27. We're going to see how preservation worked its way back into this. So the original is gone. The original is destroyed. Verse 27, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause it to cease from thence man and beast? Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David. 
and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost. You can see why he was a little upset about that. Just like some people don't like to hear that there's a lake of fire that all liars have their part in, and when you reveal to them that they are a liar and that they better have a sin bearer, they don't like to hear that. Judgment's coming. Verse 31, And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. So you get what Jeremiah or what the Lord's saying to Jeremiah, hey, get another rule. Write everything I told you before, including this. Now look at verse 32. This is awesome. Then took Jeremiah another rule and gave it to Baruch, the, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had, had burned in the fire. You know what I think is kind of cool about this? There's a reason why I was emphasizing, probably much to your guys' chagrin and annoyance, uh, words. You guys know that all, I'm sorry, book, the word book shows up eight times in this chapter. How many different ways did God speak in the Old Testament? Or, or throughout Scripture, I should say? Eight, yeah. The word book shows up eight times in this very chapter. You know what? How many times words shows up? Sixteen times. That's funny. Sixteen divided by two is what? And there were... How many rolls did Jeremiah write in this chapter? Two, yeah, yeah. Two rolls, 16 times the words shows up. Hmm. Something about that number eight. Something about that number eight. Keep coming on Sundays, you'll find out. Oh, wait a second. Hmm. I just messed up. I didn't finish reading the rest of verse 32. So... From the mouth of Jeremiah, the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. So he wrote it, and look how it ends. And there were added besides unto them many like words. This is probably going to blow some of your minds. So I'm going to try to explain it, but if it's over your head, don't worry. We're going to come back to it in the weeks to come. God inspired Jeremiah to record his revelation. The original gets burned up. God tells him, write another copy of what I said to you. And God says, I'm going to add some words to that copy. So I was off here. It's not 16 times that it shows up. It's 17, but I'm going to try my best to italicize 17. 17 times the, word, the words show up. But that 17th time, God is adding words not found in the original manuscript. So I'm going to italicize 17. Anybody catch what I'm putting down? Anybody notice something about your King James Bible? There's italicized words all over it. There are italicized words all throughout your King James Bible. You know what those words signify? They weren't found in the manuscript. They were added. We're going to cover in the weeks to come the reason why they were added. Most simply put, there's language translations. It's not a word for a one-to-one -one ratio when you translate. But here's the thing to keep in mind because this is going to trip some of you guys out when we cover it in the future. There are certain words that God adds. God added it, and it's not found in the original. But it's found preserved in the inspired Word of God. 
God has a problem when man adds to his scripture. God doesn't have a problem when he adds to his own scripture. Many people think those italicized words shouldn't be in your Bible. Just try reading certain passages and see if anything makes sense if you take out the italicized words. God added them in there for a reason, and it's been preserved for us. We just read Jeremiah 36 when we technically shouldn't because it all got destroyed. Understand something. You become a master at Jeremiah 36. Listen to me on this. You guys become very acquainted with Jeremiah 36. You will destroy the faith of Bible professors and Greek know-it-alls and Hebrew scholars. Bible says in Psalm 119 that because of this book and your faith in it, God will make you smarter than the ancients. He'll make you smarter than all your teachers. All the supposed authority figures, you just simply master what God gave you in his preserved word of God, and you will completely wreck and destroy them in the best possible way. I don't know if any of you guys have had the unique privilege of sitting down in a Starbucks when you're 18 years old and then having some 20-somethings come and sit at your table who want to talk to you about the Geneva Bible and about the Greek and how that was one of the most perfected Bibles of their time and why John Calvin actually wasn't all that far off. But let me just tell you, it's a whole lot of fun as an 18-year-old to be able to try to take this book and destroy what they believe because they don't have a final authority. Whole lot of fun to see God just completely use you as a vessel and start revealing things that you yourself didn't even realize you knew. Because God decided, I'm going to speak through you and I'm going to make sure that these self-righteous Nicolaitans, look that word up, don't have their way to try to ruin my book. You guys should start reading your Bible out in public more. You'll get into all kinds of good, fun conversations, and it'll stretch you too. Propagation, as we already saw, they took what God spoke to the king. All five proponents of God's process of giving truth to mankind found right here in Jeremiah 36, the most important of which is preservation. Because if verse 32 didn't happen, there's no way we'd be able to read it. This is huge. This is how you got your Bible. This is why you can trust the Bible you have is not lost in some original manuscript. And the best you can get is just as close to what God meant. Not going to happen. Now you can turn to the next page. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Any questions on that? If we don't finish, we'll finish wherever we, or we'll pick up wherever we left off. Any questions on that? That's a big chapter. That is a crucial chapter in our understanding of God keeping without error and protecting the purity of his words. Now, how did he then, after everything was written, go into preserving the texts? Point number three, the preservation of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God lets us know, look with me in verse 18. God, in the context of this, is talking to Israel. He's like, hey, I want to be your king. I want to be the one that guides you and leads you and everything. But hey, one day you guys are going to have a king. He's actually technically talking about the coming king, David, Messiah, in his lineage. So in concerning the king, here's what he says in verse 18. It shall be when he, the king, sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a what? Okay, with a little more enthusiasm this time. He shall write him a what? Copy. Copy of this law in a what? Book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. Number one, you might want to underline the word copy in your Bible. But also, the king was to write himself a copy of the book of the law. And at this point, it was just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So he was writing all of them. But it was kept by who? The Levites. Good job. The Levitical priesthood. The Levites. The upper echelon. The guys who they had no inheritance. They had no inheritance in the land because their inheritance was God himself. God was very, very close with the Levites. And they preserved 
a copy of the scriptures. And whenever a king sat on the throne, he was required to make himself a copy of the Bible. Check out chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 24. It came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words. You guys know why I keep emphasizing that? A lot of people will say, oh, I love the word of God. And when you look at, again, what their statement of faith is, the word of God for them is the concepts, the principles, the ideas of what they think God intended. God makes it very clear that he cares about the individual words, every word, every single word, not the general collective. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book, the first five books of the Bible, which at that point was their only Bible. That Moses commanded the who? Levites, verse 25, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for witness against thee. He goes, I know your rebellion. I know you guys are going to rebel against the Lord. And he's like, but gather me, look at verse 28, gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. So not only was the book written down, Moses was propagating all the words of this book so that there was no, there was no misunderstanding there. But the Levites were trusted to keep or protect it. On your outline, God's words were documented and, pres and preserved by the Levitical priests. Now understand something. Not all priests were Levites, but all Levites were priests. Priests. What the heck is a priest? Priests. Letter B. God's words were then preserved by the Levitical priests who were scribes. You can check those passages out. Ezra. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. Now you might want to make this note. Not all Levites were scribes, but all scribes were Levites. A scribe is somebody who writes down the scriptures. C. Actually, turn over, since we're there, turn over to chapter 4. We didn't get a chance to look at this a few weeks ago. Pastor Tom covered that in the main service that week, but now we get a chance to look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 1, now therefore, hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments, uh, synonyms for the words of God, which I teach you for to what? There's only two people in Deuteronomy 4. You guys there? Sign language? Okay. To do them that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers have given you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Levitical priests were in charge to keep it and preserve it. And we just saw here they were not to add anything to it. They were not to take anything away from it. They took God's command very seriously back then. And so they kept it, and then the scribes, when they would write it, they would follow this very same law. Don't add to it. Don't take anything away from it. That's why in letter C, God's words are kept preserved by the Jews, and your blank is the Masorites. M-A-S-O-R-I-T-E-S. Masorites. These are guys, you study them out that... They predominantly came about around the 6th century A.D., but before them, there have always been different Levites or different priests and scribes that have followed the same process that these guys follow. And we're going to look at it real quickly here. But not only these passages that we looked at are they important, you also want to become very, very familiar with these passages in Romans chapter 3. When he says, What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Paul, of course, is talking about how, man... The Jews, they're very self-righteous in their religion, much like the people you go to school with today, who are very religious in nature. He goes, man, they think that they have it all together, but you have to guard against thinking that they're useless. And Paul's telling us here, they, they had a use. Here's what it is. Much every way, chiefly, the most important thing that was committed to them, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, the writings, the words of God himself. They were to keep it intact. 
who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants found in the scriptures and the giving of the law found in the scriptures and the service of God and the promises. Israel was committed with keeping and preserving the words of God. Now you might be asking yourself, wait a second. You mean to tell me that we're trusting that God preserved his word through flawed men, specifically the nation of Israel? Uh, yeah, because God had no problem using a murderer to write scripture, Moses. He had no problem using a murderer and an adulterer to write scripture, David. God had no problem using them to inspire and write scripture. Why would God have a problem working through sinful men to preserve it. Now the following checklists here are the rules that the Masorites and similar priests before them had to follow as they were making copies of copies of scripture. Here it is. Imagine if you had to do this. It must be written on the skins of clean animals, the copies of the scripture. It must be fastened together by strings from a clean animal. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns and they must be equal throughout the entire codex. The length of each column must be between 48 to 60 lines long. Imagine if you went 39. Seriously, you know what you'd have to do? <sighs> must be written on the skins of clean animals. Must be fast to get, you'd have to start all over. The width of each line must be exactly 30 letters. What if your word ended up having 39 or 29. The ink must be black and prepared according to a certain recipe. <laughs> the new copy must be made from an authorized copy. You know who authorizes a copy? A king. Kings authorize copies of scripture. I just did my hard wink there. You might have to think about that one. Or you just turn to the binding of your book. Next, no word or letter can be written from memory. Doesn't matter how good your memory is. Doesn't matter how many scripture points you got from camp. No. The copyist must pronounce each word aloud before copying it. Anybody here feeling overwhelmed if you had to do this job? I'm sitting here reading it for the third time this week and I'm getting overwhelmed. Uh, each word and letter must be counted and compared to the authorized copy because it's authorized from a king. It's the standard. It's the <clears throat> monarch of books. The middle letter of the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, the middle clause and letter of each book and how many times each letter of the alphabet occurs in all the Hebrew scriptures was known and recorded to be used as a guide to reprove or correct all copies ensuring their unity and accuracy. Between every letter, there must be a space of a hair or thread. Between every new section, there must be the space of nine letters. Between every book, there must be three lines. The fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy, must end exactly with a line. Here's where things get real nuts. The copyist must sit in a full Jewish dress. The copyist must have just washed their entire body. The copyist must write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. He must again wash his entire body before writing the name of God. Remember last week we talked about how holy the name of God was to them? Whenever they came to a scripture verse that had God's name in it, they had to disrobe, go clean themselves head to toe, get brand new clothes on, and get a brand new pen, dip it in ink, and then write the next name, the name of God down. Imagine if you had a verse you were copying that had God's name in it six times. Just read Isaiah and Jeremiah and you'll find it. Oh, and get this. And should a king address him while he is writing that name, he must ignore the king. Proofreading was observed through the copying process. If any errors were discovered, the entire work must be discarded. <laughs> the final new copy must be checked against the authorized copy because it's the standard. It's the standard by which all future copies compare themselves to. Wink, 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 wink. If one incorrect letter was found, the entire manuscript was to be discarded. 
You see, the Masoretic priests were the ones responsible throughout the centuries of keeping Old Testament texts in Hebrew words preserved. The manuscripts that were used to translate the King James Bible are known as the Masoretic texts. In other words, painstaking measures were taken to make sure that every single word was duly accounted for. Sure. Overly religious, yeah. But I gotta tell you, if somebody is making a copy of the scriptures, uh, I'd want them to be this detailed. I'd want them to be this thorough. Last page. The preservation of the New Testament, a little different. <laughs> Letter A, the Holy Spirit revealed truth to the apostles. We saw that already in John 16. Oh, but don't miss this. This is huge. Oh my goodness, is this huge. To the point where I didn't even... What the heck happened to that text? I must have deleted something. Anyways, we got it. I, I didn't even really see this before until this week. 2 Peter 3.16 is a crucial verse. Here's why. As also in all his epistles, this is Peter speaking about Paul. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be un understood. You guys understand that Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and he wrote letters or epistles? Peter's referring to them. Bear with me. Which they that are unlearned and unstable, they rest or they twist, as they do also unto their own destruction. That's what that was supposed to be. As they do also unto their own destruction, the other scriptures. Wow, I inserted that in between destruction. I don't know what the heck happened, whatever. What Peter is saying is that, hey, Paul's words, his epistles, they who are unlearned and unstable, they twist his words out of context. Maybe they add certain things to them. Maybe they take away certain things unto them. But note what he says here. They do that to the other scriptures. Do you know why this is so crucial? Number one... Peter just said that Paul's letters are scripture, meaning they are from God. Here's what it didn't even dawn on me until this week. Do you know what you and I take for granted? When we hear the word scripture, it's this. Do you understand at the time that Peter's writing this, the word scripture to them only meant the Old Testament. It was only the Old Testament. So the fact that Peter is saying Paul's writings are equal with Scripture? That makes this verse very important to our Bibles. Because he's equating Paul's letters, who wrote a majority of the New Testament, as Scripture. Now, people might have an issue with this. By faith, I'm a Bible believer. I believe what the Bible says. If it's been in my Bible that Peter said Paul's writings are Scripture, I believe that when I'm reading Paul's letters, it's Scripture. Some people may have an issue with that. Then they don't walk by faith, they walk by sight, and you need not to waste a lot of time if you're arguing with them on it. Letter A, the Holy Spirit revealed truth to the apostles. Letter B, the apostles wrote out the revelation as we already saw. Ephesians 3.3, how that by revelation... Paul is saying, he made known unto me the mystery as I, what? Yeah, because whenever God revealed truth, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. They were inspired, and it caused them to write inspiration. Letter C, the revelations were distributed to the intended recipient. You got all those letters there. The recipients and peers or others made copies just like a king was instructed to do, just like the scribes of the Old Testament did. Here's the case in point. Colossians 4.16. It's the letter to Colossae. It's the letter to the church in Colossae. And Paul is saying, when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. You know the distance between Colossae and Laodicea? Nine miles. Walking distance, that's three hours if you're kind of moseying through. Yeah, they could have taken that letter and given it and read it to them, and they're like, all right, it's ours. See you guys later. But if Colossi just kept that letter, you think we'd be reading it now? And if it was something that the guys in Laodicea had to know and had to do so they could study it, 
Which, by the way, you're a Laodicean, so if you're looking for something that's to you, maybe you guys should read the book of Colossians. No. When they got it, they made a copy of the letter themselves. And maybe whatever churches or disciples they were discipling, they would have them make a copy of it. And then when that guy was done and he became a discipler and he made his own disciple, he'd make him a copy of the scripture. Which is why 1 Thessalonians 5.27 says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Not just in Thessalonica, all of them. So in other words, make some mission trips over to some of the other churches in Asia Minor because I want them to hear this. That's how we got it. Letter E, the copies of the recorded revelations were distributed and received by other believers, and then they were preserved. And you might want to underline, I know I made preserve the blank, but you might want to underline priesthood through the priesthood of believers within local churches. That's what 1 Peter 2 talks about. We have the written word of God, and we are called New Testament priests. Just as the Levites were to be intact of preserving the copies of Scripture, the same thing happened with us. Now, i got to ask you guys this as we close out. A lot of people have no problem believing that, yes, God inspired holy men to write out His words in the original manuscripts. We saw that. By and large, most every church in this area believes that. All the big churches that you see of social media influencers on Instagram, by and large, if I had to guess, they all believe that too. You mean to tell me it's easier for God to inspire all of these people? Do you realize how, how long some books were written? I mean, Moses, for the first five books of the Bible, he had to write down crap that happened way before he was even alive. The span of time that happened from Genesis to Exodus is monumental. We often just think about it as like, oh, it's probably just a couple hundred years. No, we're talking thousands of years between Genesis to Exodus. And God had to write to him. That was a long, arduous process of writing out God's scripture. People think that it's harder for God to preserve, keep intact without error, his book, and they think it was just no small thing, or they think it was a small thing, that God was able to inspire it all. So let me ask you guys something. Which is easier? Building a road across a vast wilderness, and I have a picture here for scale. This is the Alaskan Highway that soldiers during World War II built. Can you imagine? Like, here's what the forest looked like before. Imagine clearing all of this out and building a road in a mountain like this that stretches for dozens if not hundreds of miles. Which is easier? Building a road across a vast wilderness or just patching up a few potholes in a road that's already been built? That's the difference between inspiration and preservation. Inspiration is God writing all the events throughout all of human history, literally. Everything before Christ, everything that's going to happen in the tribulation period, and yes, oh yes, even events that happened the past 2,000 years after the Bible was recorded, it's all found in here. All of human history is written in this book. This is a vast wilderness of road that has been plowed and set. Preservation it's the equivalent of just patching up a few holes along the way. Oh, hey, you guys, you guys in Colossae, you guys missed. There's, see, all of us have this copy here. You guys missed. There's this one word missing here. So just make sure you add it, that one word to your copy because I think somebody might have missed it. So just throw out your old ones and just add that word back in because here is the, here's the body of evidence that suggests you guys missed out that one word. So just patch it up. Patch the hole. That's the difference between inspiration and preservation. And then number five, you can check this out to yourself, the canonization of the Bible. The Jews kept the Old Testament. We saw that in Romans 3, 2. We saw how the New Testament was preserved. There are certain books that your Bible will mention. You can check out those passages later. There are certain books that are mentioned. They're not in the Bible. They're not in the Bible because God didn't preserve them. 
Maybe he inspired them to help people during that time. But God said, you know what? It's not for you guys. You don't need to know about it. We can ask him about it when we get there. But pay close attention to that second to last one of the Apocrypha. It was in the original 1611 King James for historical context only. Everybody knew it was an inspired scripture. Jesus never once quoted from it. None of the New Testament writers quoted from it. And none of the churches ever received it as part of their Bible. Those books were left out. All 66 books that you have, the 39 in the Old Testament, the 27 in the New Testament, are there for a reason. The bottom line, the Bible we have is what God desires for us to have, and He is able to compile and keep it. (music) 